Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, I think many of us from our earliest days, from time to time, have heard the expression experiential Christianity or the older term experimental Christianity. Or we might have heard the longer term reformed experiential Christianity. But what exactly does that mean? And more perhaps importantly, what exactly does that look like? How do we know viscerally what that is? And have we ever experienced it? There are many things in life we can do without. There are many things in life we can be mistaken about. But when it comes to experiencing God, a relationship with God, there just isn't any room for misunderstanding. So where do we find not a denominational definition, not a Puritan definition, not a church historical definition of Reformed experiential Christianity? Where do we find the essence of what that is so that we know for sure, whether it's something we have experienced. How can we be absolutely certain that that life is our life? Well, there's only one place to turn, and you know where that is, and I know where that is, so that's where we want to turn tonight, to the Word of God, and to find a place that in the most compact and yet exquisite form, describes to us what Christ in one's life looks like. Our text then is Galatians 2, verse 20. The Apostle Paul, by the Spirit of God, writes, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're going to entitle our message, Christ the Center of Christian Experience. And the Apostle Paul describes three central features of that life. Dying with a crucified Jesus. Living by an indwelling Jesus. And persevering through faith in a loving Jesus. Christ, the center of Christian experience, and in the first place, dying with a crucified Jesus. To help us understand what Paul is referring to. It's important for a moment to consider the context of this letter. The Spirit of God prompted Paul to write an epistle to the churches of Galatia. In Colossians chapter 11, I'm sorry, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, Paul tells us that the care of the churches rested most heavily on his heart. 
he would sometimes hear of excesses or threatenings of heretical teachings. And it would prompt him, in part, to write an epistle. He would write about other things too, instruction, encouragement, and so on. But the letter to the Galatians is unique in this respect. He gets six verses into the letter before he attacks the error that plagued that church. And we would say, Paul, why so vehement a response to this church? Because what Paul was discerning was an attack on the very gospel itself. There were some who were, in essence, corrupting the gospel. They were teaching by implication that faith in Jesus was somehow insufficient. It wasn't, boys and girls, enough to be saved. You needed something more. So how did Paul address that issue? And he simply said, it is the gospel only. And he makes that plain in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But then Paul does something unusual, something he doesn't normally do. He takes us on a journey through his own life. He explains to them, I've been there, I've done that, I've tried to live according to the law to please God, to be saved. I did the sacrifices, I fasted, I did everything I could to be a good Jew. And I came to realize it was rubbish in the sight of God. And so, by the end of his own journey through the error of works righteousness, he warns the Galatians and by extension us, it may be very tempting for us, not just once, not just twice, but throughout our entire life, to think, I'm not good enough to be saved. Or, I'm not good enough to think I'm saved. And I have this expression, excuse it please, that I use in my own church family. And that is, if I were to go through every one of the pews and ask even the boys and girls, can you be saved by your good works? I don't think any of them would say yes. We know that much. But if I would change the question and I would say, now, the way you're living and more especially the way you're sinning and the things you still see in you, does that meet the standard that you think a godly person should be? Doesn't that cause us unrest? Don't you have it? where, whether it's Satan's temptation or your own mind, it says, if I were a believer, I wouldn't think this way. I wouldn't do that sin. I wouldn't live the way I'm living. It would be different. It would be better. I would be more godly. And then we start to make conclusions. But beloved, 
Maybe we've locked the door to front door righteousness, saying explicitly, I can save myself. But we can come in the back door and say, but my life doesn't meet the standard of a believer, so therefore. And Paul would say, hold on a minute. What is your hope? What is the foundation of any believer's hope? What is your acceptance with God? It is Christ and him alone. And it's only when that foundation is our foundation that we can begin to make headway, as it were, into godliness, not the other way around. But then at the end of this, this rather correcting chapter, after describing his own experience, he comes to the end of the chapter and it's as it were, he compacts and compresses the whole business down into one statement. Do you want to know, dear Galatians, do you want to know the difference between the true gospel and the false? Then I want you to look in my heart, Paul's heart, the heart of one of the greatest sinners who ever lived, who persecuted the people of God, who spat upon the name of Christ. Look in that heart and see what the gospel did to me. And so as we gaze in this verse to the inmost center of Paul's being, God gives us three infallible marks of all true Christian experience. He begins with these words, I am crucified with Christ. What does that mean? We don't have it so much in the English language, but in the Greek language, there is a verb tense that says something that happened in the past continues to affect me in the present. So maybe you had a traumatic experience years ago, but you find that it's affecting you all your life. Paul is saying that something that happened years ago has ongoing results in my life. And in the context, we can see that Paul is actually talking about two crucifixions. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Paul grew up as a young man, as an adult, watching countless animal sacrifices, streams of blood, fire consuming them. The guilty Israelite goes free and the animal that was sinless dies in his place. He would hear the priest declare, you are forgiven. And the Israelite would walk away unburdened. Now, how much Paul understood of all of that, we don't know until God got a hold of him and changed him. And he began to see the whole of it in a different way. There hung the Lamb of God on the cross, bearing my reproach 
enduring my shame, suffering and agonizing and shedding his precious blood on the New Testament altar, which is the cross. And now, by the Spirit of God's work, by faith, Paul understood it. He now, by faith, beheld the Lamb of God suffering and dying. He saw in his mind's eye the precious blood sprinkled on him, the guilty one. And just like the Israelite bringing the animal would put his hands on the head of that animal as if to say, I am transferring my sins to you. And by faith, believing that it happened, Paul now, in his own way, was saying, I have placed the hands of my faith on the Lamb of God who died. I am crucified with him. But unlike the Jews. That sacrifice didn't have to be repeated over and over and over again. He came to see. He came to believe. It is finished. He bled for me. It was, his, his, it was my everlasting shame he endured. When his father hid his face from his son, it was so that the veil of sin might be rent, keeping me from his presence. He for me. He died and, beloved, my sins died with him. And dear sinner, as you hear this, what do you think of this Savior? What do you think of God the Father who spared not his own sinless Son, but delivered him up as the Lamb of God, so that we might live. Does sin weigh upon you? Do you sometimes almost despair of ever really knowing that peace of God, that forgiveness of God, that joy unspeakable and full of glory that Peter writes about? Well, if you want to know it, cast yourselves there. Behold the Lamb of God. That was the first crucifixion Paul aligned himself with. But Paul, at the very same time, with the very same words, said, I am crucified with Christ. There was another crucifixion, and it was Paul's crucifixion. In what sense? In verse 19, Paul says, I, through the law, am dead to the law, so that I might live unto God. What he means by that, I had hoped that by keeping the law, I could please God. But the very law, the very word of God, which he had hoped to establish his righteousness before God, slew him, it killed him, it condemned him. The burden of being perfect was a burden he could not bear. And I trust it's a burden you cannot bear. It is certainly one that I cannot bear. And what does the law say? Cursed is everyone who continueth not in all things that the law says. To do them. 
So, boys and girls, it wasn't like Paul was nailed to a cross. It wasn't like he had to die for his sins in order to be saved. But there was something about Paul that had to die. He died inside. And just like a real crucifixion is a slow and excruciatingly painful death, so is this one. Pride, our sin nature, even our very desire after sin, every attempt at reforming ourselves by ourselves, every attempt to keep the law, to earn God's favor, everything had to go, which was not Christ. All which kept him going before, all that he thought made him acceptable in God's eyes, apart from Christ, had to be killed. Not just discarded, it had to die. And the fact is, remember what we said about that verb. This didn't just happen to Saul of Tarsus once on the way of Damascus. That self-crucifixion, that dying to himself, is an ongoing thing. He is saying, I am still dying. I am still crucifying my flesh. Do you know something of that? You know, Scripture in in a variety of ways describes this. Mortifying the flesh, the, the sinful tendencies. Killing, destroying, liberating from bondage, putting off the old man, putting on the new man. And that death stroke of all that we have tried to make our hope based upon, that death stroke began when we were born again. It continues as God exposes all the sins in our life. It goes even further when we come to realize our greatest burden is not the actual sins we commit, as horrible as they are, not the actual good that we haven't been doing, that we should have been doing. The greatest burden the, the place where crucifixion needs to reach is the very existence of any desire in the inmost being. In other words, if you're a believer, you will well understand why, oh God, do I still feel drawn to sin. So that he comes to the depths of our heart and that depth of our heart has to be crucified, mortified daily. He says, Paul does elsewhere, I die daily. The old man dead, the new man rising, the struggles that we have as believers, pride, lust, covetousness, spiritual laziness, passivity, unbelief, struggles in prayer, struggles in keeping our desires bright, hungering after the Lord, private or public worship, can you identify with this seemingly intractable tendency towards sin? Can you say with David, my iniquities have gone over my head as a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt. 
this very Paul, the good that I would, I do not. He acknowledged God has kindled a desire in my life. The new man is crying out to live unto God. But I find in me this law of my flesh, like, like a, a ball and chain dragging around with me. Oh God, deliver me. And you may wonder why. Why must it be so? It certainly doesn't sound very attractive, does it? But the fact is, it is a father's love. It is the Savior's grace. So that we never become independent. So we never lose the amazement and the worship of centering on Jesus alone. And not just once to be saved, but looking to him ongoing for daily grace to be godly. We were chatting on the way here, and I was saying to the elder who drove me, he said, did you ever hear this story? And I'm sure many of you probably did, but for those who didn't, I'll tell it. There was a village where a father and the son lived together. The son gets married. The father is a fisherman. The son was used to eating fish at the dinner table at home, weekly, daily, whatever it was. But now that he's married, he lived across town. So he would come to his father. His father said, any time you come to me and I will give you fish for your family. And after a few weeks of this, the son said, um, Dad, you know, I love to visit you and all, but um, couldn't you give me a week's worth of fish? Then I don't have to be coming every day to your house. And the father smiled at him. He said, son, I want to see you every day. That's why I give you a day's worth of fish. Beloved, our father, our savior, wants to see us every day. He wants to hear from us every day. And our tendency is, Lord, give me a month's worth of grace or maybe a week's worth of grace. But he says, no, your best is when you're dependent. When you're weak, you're at your strength because it's then that you access the strength that I will give you. And if we really insist on complaining about this way, consider Hebrews 5, verse 8, speaking of Jesus. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. If God's divine made human son learned obedience by what he suffered, are we going to complain when God trains us through suffering, disappointments, disillusionment, and brokenness to depend wholly upon him? And God accomplishes this by a variety of means. Peter says we need this mind of Christ, 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2, as much as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind. He that suffered in the flesh ceases from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time 
in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. So we think of afflictions, of trials, of this crucifixion of the old nature as medicine so that the new man may flourish, so that he would make of us fit vessels for his glory. He uses his word. He uses the preaching. He uses a fellow Christian coming up to us and lovingly correcting us. He uses a variety of means, but the goal is the same, to make us to know his grace. This is the firm yet loving labor of your Father in heaven designed to conform us to his image. He puts us through fire so that we may come forth as gold. And never, ever forget, when thou passest through the waters, I am with thee. Through the fire, I will not forsake thee. The rivers shall not overflow thee. So though you be tried, don't despair, but trust that it is his work. But now that's just one part of the true Christian experience. This crucified Christ being my only hope and the crucifixion of anything that's not Christ in me being my ongoing Experience, But then in the second place, it's not just dying. And boys and girls, I know what Satan wants to tell you, that the Christian life is no good. It's no fun. You'll never be able to enjoy things again. It's just one unending church service and so on. But he's the father of lies. Paul in the second place says, nevertheless, I live. Now, how do we understand that? God doesn't crucify us inwardly just to cause us to be cast down. What God is doing is what we do when we buy an old house and we want to renovate it. You first have to clear away the junk. You first have to tear down the walls you don't want before you can begin to renovate. And so the Lord was taking Saul of Tarsus and he was turning him into Paul the missionary. Jesus did not just die to conquer sin and its curse, although he did that. But Jesus rose again, the scripture says, to give us newness of life. That's why every Sunday is Resurrection Day, where we are reminded the Christian life is all about living. If I could put it this way, Jesus came out of the grave with the believers all in his heart, with the church of God in his arms. He rose for you, dear believer, that you might not be subject to bondage and to the fear of death all your life. To put it another way, children, Saul had to die, but he awoke in the resurrected Christ, a new man, Paul. And the believer, upon being raised from spiritual death, begins to walk 
after the Spirit, says Romans 1, uh, 8 verse 1. To put it another way, the new man is struggling to come to the foreground, to live the life of the new creation. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, could be translated a new creation. Old things passed away, all things become new. And Jesus' resurrection, and particularly his ascension, is our assurance that one day, not only will he raise us to newness of spiritual life in this life, but he is not going to stop until we end up where he ends up. And that is fully like him in glory. And yet Paul hastens to qualify what he says. He says, I am living with Christ. I live. Nevertheless, not I, but Christ liveth in me. So the real miracle of the Christian life is not only that we are a new creation. The absolute astonishing thing is Christ is living in me. And it's as though Paul says this. So there isn't a chance in the world that the Galatians would think Paul had any credit to be earned. This was entirely Jesus' work on the cross, rising from the grave, ascending into heaven, and living by the Spirit of God in his heart. It was him. All attention on him. But not just on the way to Damascus, present tense, ongoing. We could say it this way. Paul is losing his identity in himself. He is adopting a new identity. I belong to him. I am his. He is mine. He is all. He knows him now. He loves him now. He longs and thirsts for him now. Jesus is my all. Paul loses his identity as the Pharisee and he loses it in the identity of Jesus, my Savior. It's no longer my name that matters, but it's his name that matters. It's no longer my dreams that need to be fulfilled. It's now his kingdom that matters. It's no longer my life. It's his life. It belongs to him. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, Paul describes this process this way. But we all, he includes all of the church of believers, we all with open face, that means without a veil in front of our eyes, we are beholding, we are seeing, we are focused on in a glass, in this word, our looking glass, we are looking in this word at the glory of the Lord. And as I am focused on him and not on me, something's happening. I am changed, he says. From, I am changed into the same image I'm looking at from glory to glory as by the Spirit of God. Children, did you ever see two people who were married for a really long time? They start to talk. 
like each other. They start to think like each other. They, they finish each other's sentences. They can even start to look like each other. Now, I hope Mrs. Lipsy doesn't start looking like me, but the other way around. But that's what Paul is saying. The more we look within, we're going to keep looking like we look like. The more we look at Christ, it's not just admiring him. It's not just uh, looking at him and, and thinking, what a wonderful Savior. And even I'm trusting in him. No, God goes one step further. He makes us like him by looking at him. Christ living in me begins to come out of me. He begins to show himself in me. And there's nothing more beautiful than to see a, a young child or a, or a teenager or an elderly saint or someone in between looking like Jesus, talking like Jesus, loving like Jesus, isn't there? John writes, but we know when he shall appear at last, we shall be like him. How? Why? For we shall see him as he is. In other words, this, this process of, of looking at Christ by faith in the word, changing us incrementally, will be completely finished when we actually see him. Not in the word, but face to face. Then that renovation will be complete. We will glisten in likeness to him. Why is a backsliding Christian so unlike Jesus? Because we seldom look at him out of a sense of shame. Or we've let something else distract our attention, our focus, our love. But we are the branches and he is the vine and he's told us in me is your fruit found. Now these, may, these things may seem very distant from some of us, perhaps unattainable, a, a world apart from the world we live in. And we can too easily fall for, well, poor me, because I can hardly relate to these things. But let me just say, if you are the least interested in this process, if there's something attractive about what Paul is saying to us in the word of God, then just listen. Because there's more to this story. There is much more to this story. Persevering through faith in a loving Jesus. We might look at what Paul is saying and say, Paul... I don't live in the same world you do. You seem to have it all together. Paul, don't you face the same distractions, the same difficulties, the same sins, struggles that we do? I mean, you seem, you seem to live in this in this hyper-spiritual world where everything is, is grand and, and, and on a huge scale and, and we just live in, well, we live here. Our lives are like so nondescript, so ordinary. But look what Paul says at the end. And the life that I now live, and then make note of this, in the flesh. 
in the flesh. Which means Paul had a ways to go yet. And if you study the New Testament, it was a rocky road. Not only did he have these thorns in his flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet him, something that he so wanted removed from his life that he asked God three times to take it away. But then you can see the catalog of all that he experienced, the shipwrecks, the beating, the stoning, the rejection, the deception. I mean, the man was plagued with this life. I scarce say that any of us have experienced what he did. But what does he say? How do I live the life that I now live in the flesh? He tells us. I live by the faith of the Son of God. Now I want you to pay special attention to little words. He doesn't say, I now live by faith in the Son of God. That's what we would expect. But he says, I live by the faith of the Son of God. What does that mean? Look, don't you have it where faith seems to just wither? It seems to elude us. We want to believe these things. We want to appropriate these things. We want to live out these things. But we find this chasm between what we want and where we're at. And we find sometimes we just can't click our fingers and faith appears and the bridge is gap. Uh, the gap is bridged. And Paul felt that too. And he says, it's not so much the strength of my faith, how I get through this life. It is actually the strength of his faith. Now, we may not be accustomed to thinking like that. But I think we all understand that Christ's perfect life is meant to be given to us as our own. So that everything about his life covers our life perfectly. But that includes faith. Look at the faith of Jesus, boys and girls. There he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it be possible, take this cup away from me. Let's just end it right here and stop this march to the cross. But then faith, the faith of Jesus says, nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want, Father. And he goes to the cross. And Hebrews tells us he cried with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him. And what was the answer of his father? Silence. It's as though God the Father went like this. And he had to. Why? Because if he hadn't done that to Jesus, he would be doing that to you and me forever. And Jesus said, I'll take it. I'll take it for you. And I can take it for you because he believed that after the cross would be glory. He trusted his father would make good on his promise. And so that's why we read the remarkable verse 
where it says he endured the cross, he despised the shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him. He believed that joy would follow the cross. I'm winning my church home. And he did. And Paul says, I'm leaning the weight of my life in this sin-cursed earth on that son of God, on his trust. That's going to hold me when my faith seems weak as water or running out and nothing's left. And as he gets older, the Apostle Paul, enduring trial after trial, we can easily and rightly say he concluded, I can't do this without Christ. In fact, he said elsewhere, for me to live is Christ. So dependent, so thankfully in touch with his Savior. He says, I need him more every day. I lean on him to be all my strength, all my wisdom, all my comfort. And there at the end of his life, children, did God make good? When Paul leaned on God, did God support him? Listen to this. He's in the prison cell, probably for the last time. Nero's ready to execute him. And he writes these words. At my first offense, no man stood with me. All men forsook me. My friends were gone. Barnabas, Peter, where are you? And then he says, however, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. So there, the aged Paul, facing imminent death, leaning on his Lord more than ever, And he understood what Peter was told by Jesus. Peter, I have prayed for thee that thy faith would not fail. How did he know that Jesus would support him? Those beautiful final words that savior who loved me and gave himself for me as Paul struggled on against innumerable enemies against privation after privation after forsakings of friends and companions and loneliness We see him looking back and we see him looking up. He looks back at that amazing, momentous moment when Jesus, the son of the living God, literally gave himself to his last drop of blood for the persecuting Pharisee Saul. And he never got over it. Did you never stagger at the words that Paul would write in Romans? Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly. And he marveled. He gave himself for me. But then Paul didn't just stop at the cross. He went all the way back 
to a father whose everlasting love stood behind the Lamb of God and behind the cross of Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. So what is the center of Christian experience? Everything that's not Jesus, as much as we'd like to hold on to it, as much as we'd like it to be part of our hope, as much as we think it gives us a little bit of credit with God, don't hold on. It's got to go. But there's something far, far stronger, far more stable, immovable. And it's not my faith in Jesus because that goes up and it goes down and it disappears and it reappears. Not that we ever truly lose faith, but we certain our grip on the Savior is not always the same, is it? But then to say, Lord Jesus, it's not my holding thee, it's thy holding me. And to believe, I am ungodly, I am not worthy, I am unqualified in every sense of the word. But as John would write later in his epistle, we have known and believed the love that God has to me. I don't normally recommend a book during a sermon, but I'm going to do that now. I did it in Picture Butte a little while ago. If you have not read it, I highly recommend you do. It is a book that's come out somewhat recently called Gentle and Lowly by an author named Dane Ortland. It is one of the most profound books I have ever read. And if I could summarize the entire thing in one sentence, the author from every conceivable angle of scripture brings to us the character of God as God describes it himself. And the author says toward the end of that book, when, speaking to the reader, when are you going to submit to God's revelation of himself. When are you going to believe that God is in fact who he says he is? And then he just pours the scripture out before you chapter after chapter from every angle imaginable. And by the end of the book, you are left absolutely stunned because our natural conception of God is just blown away by how God himself describes himself. Now you're going to find a line or two, a word or two, this or that. Just keep going. It gets better with every chapter. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, or however that should be said. But the point is, it's exactly what Paul is saying. I didn't find my hope in anything other than him, and I am depending on him for life. And just to give you a taste of the character of God that Paul saw in Jesus, 
Psalm 86, verse 5, For thou art good and, listen, ready to forgive. You can picture a father. Look, those of you who are fathers, you watch your children mess up, maybe really badly. It was something that grieved you. Where is your heart? Don't you look at that son and you feel what? You feel pity. Son, don't you realize what you're doing? If you're the kind of God that most people think of, he's standing in heaven like, again? That's the last time. Now you're done. That's not who God is. There's a boy coming back from a pigsty who spent all of the father's money, who lived an ungodly life, who had no claim on his father's love. And as soon as he appears on the horizon, what does that father do in scripture? Wait till that boy comes home. No. He runs. He runs. And he throws his arm around that boy and he smothers his confession with love. The only way you and I can stay far from God is if you've believed the lie about him. That you believe he's not that father. He's this father. And so therefore you have no motivation to come home to him because you believed a lie. A lie that started on day one when Satan first tempted and it stays the same today. So let me ask you what the author asked me. When are you going to submit to God's revelation of himself? Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in mercy. I just said in picture view, there's only one verse in all of Scripture that describes the riches of God. The riches of God. What is it? He is rich in mercy. He owns the universe. But he says of himself, I am rich in mercy. Well, who is mercy for? Himself, his son, you. I have more mercy. I have more grace than you could ever have sin. Do you believe it? The Lord is good. And that's why he does good. I have no pleasure, says the Lord. As I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And you might be sitting here, but if I only knew he loved me, if I only knew he gave himself for me, but beloved, if you would have asked Paul, Why did Jesus give himself for you? He would have said, because he loved me. And if you would ask Paul, but why did he love you? 
There wasn't a single reason in Paul that could answer that question. He loved me because he willed to love me. Even me. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, will he teach sinners in the way. We love him because he first loved us. Do you believe that Jesus, that God the Father, that the Holy Spirit, like Micah writes, he delights in mercy? Well, if he delights in mercy, shouldn't you and I delight in mercy? being the recipients of that mercy. And I would say, as the old uh, Puritans would say, venture yourself upon the Lord. Honestly, what do you have to lose but your sins? And if you're afraid of presumption, let me clarify something for you right here and now. You are presumptuous if you do not believe. You are deceiving yourself if you remain unsaved. You've already bought the lie. Hook, line, and sinker. And that's why repentance means change your mind. And if you find it so hard to do so, go to the Savior of sinners and ask him, I have heard of thee with the hearing of the ear, but now let my eye of faith see thee so that I am convinced that thou art exactly who you say you are. And if you wait to find out what the Lord is like, let me save you the time. If you remain at a distance, believing the lie, you undoubtedly will meet the God of judgment. Because you did not love his son. And if there's anything that offends the Lord more than any other sin you could ever commit, it's ignoring, despising, rejecting his son, whom he loves more than anything and anyone. No man, said Jesus, can come unto the Father except by me. And if you're struggling, how do I know? How do I know? How do I know? How does Jesus answer that question? All that the Father hath given to me shall come to me. If you are being drawn to Christ right now, if you know you're not there, but you are coming as a broken, as a self-righteous, as whatever you are to Jesus, all that the Father has given to him, they shall come. And what happens when they come? And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast I 
I end with Isaiah 26, verse 3. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed.